0: Hey, hey! welcome Disability Law Show. Back at it once again. John School's here. Of course, my pal Tamar Agopian is here answering all of your questions. You're like, how do I ask one? There's a few different ways. Anytime, it might appear on a show as well if you uh, call... Tamar and her colleagues, her team at one 821 5900 Email, brilliant option, help at disabilityrights.ca. And another place that uh, gets checked all the time, not only by Tamar and her team, but others at the firm, mydisabilityquestions.com. That database is searchable, which means uh, you know I've got a lengthy question, but is there one here that has been asked previously? Save me some time, search it, type it in, see if it is something similar. If not, leave your question there, and if so, you can check out the answer of the previously asked Question, and uh, if you want to leave it at that, but there you go. mydisabilityquestions.com We'll get to some emails here in just a bit tomorrow. But we always start off with a couple of cases of the day. Week that was beauties that you've been working on. What do you got, pal?
1: Absolutely, this week has been a good one because I got to have lunch with my colleague and friend James Fireman, who, as nice. you know, John, you know, shares some airtime with me and does a bunch of our television shows and what have mm-hmm. you. And you know this is an oldie but a goodie but we got to reminiscing over lunch yesterday about how we first met and so for those of our listeners who haven't uh back to several years james and i actually met on either sides of the table the right. litigation table that is yep. i used to work for one of the big large insurance companies and james and i had a number of contentious files against one another and we got to know each other pretty well through that process he likes to openly call me a pia that's short for pain in the you know what Um, but i think you know we bonded over a couple things and i think the main thing was and he said this again to me yesterday john is our love for disability law And, and i know that sounds very strange and unusual and you know what is it about disability law but there's just I think we have a lot of passion for it it bonded us over you know years and years ago a lot of mutual respect and you know he we had a couple of lunches and he invited me to sort of meet the partners at the firm and the rest is sort of you know magic history i would say and here i am uh representing uh i think the the good people out there who are challenging disability insurers for their benefits and so we were chatting over lunch yesterday about some recent cases and some exciting things that are happening. Uh, we talked about uh, this one recent decision that came down uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe even a month ago now, and it was a jury trial, actually, John, which we don't see a lot of. So there's no reported decision because when it's a jury uh, decision, it's not written out like it would be if it had mm-hmm. been a judge making a ruling. But a very rare uh, trial decision where a disability claim went all the way through and the jury awarded the claimant a million and a half in Damn. damages, 1.5 million. So look, we're keeping a close eye on that one. Um, very interesting. It was against Blue Cross, one of the large disability insurers in Ontario and across Canada. And, you know, look, it was an unusual one in a sense that we we don't often see the cases go to trial. We don't often see them before a jury. And we actually don't often see these kinds of very, very high Uh, damages awards being made Uh, and I think it's like it's a record it's like one, one of the highest that I can remember in in our time doing this kind of work but I think it really has good reverberations I would say it has had an important impact to remind disability insurers out there look you know courts judges juries they are not going to take kindly to a disability insurer who is not properly treating a claimant not during just the adjudication of their claim, but throughout the litigation as well. So there was a lot of criticism around what was happening during the the litigation, and one of those things was several days and hours of surveillance. So one of these tools that disability insurers like to use is, look, we're going to hire an investigator, we're going to kind of watch you for a few days, see what you're doing, and we're going to line that up with... An activity log that we send you and we're going to ask you what you're doing on those days and we're essentially going to try and entrap you to see whether or not you're honest about your activities from what we observed our investigator doing versus what you told us that you were doing on these activity reports or perhaps what you told us you were doing to the adjuster or to your doctors. And that sometimes can form the basis of a denial of a disability claim where they say, look, there's inconsistencies and we think you can do more. And based on what we've seen on the surveillance, we're going to cut off your claim. And the, the this decision, I think the outcome of this was a real slap against the insurance company for taking this tactic too far, for doing so many hours of surveillance that it outweighed reasonableness. It didn't really amount to much. Uh, very intrusive, of course. And it's it's unusual, so I don't want our listeners to worry, look, I, I'm getting disability benefits. It must mean that the insurance company is going to have eyes on me. No, it's not that routine. But when it's done improperly, when it's done aggressively and excessively, and it doesn't amount to you know moving the needle in terms of getting further information and insight on the disability claim, well, guess what? Courts are not going to like that. Juries are not going to like that. So I think it has had an important effect in our world An important development and a good one because it favors the climate so if you're listening and you're worried and you're scared and you're not sure guess what this is what we're here for and we're very passionate about it full circle to my lunch with james we're very passionate about it we keep tabs on the things that are happening we talk about it and we try and use that as leverage to you know, improve the outcome of the claims for our clients to get better resolutions, all of that. So, all good things. Uh, and I thought it was a good one to start our week uh, talking about.
0: It was indeed. And by the way, any matters you could reach out to tomorrow, as I mentioned off the top, 1 855 821 5900, help at disability rights.ca. What, uh, what else you got cooking, pal?
1: Yeah, so in the uh, context of sort of staying. Connected with colleagues and friends, and that I do have um, a former friend, a former, I should say, she is a current friend, but a former colleague is what I meant to say, John. Uh, we used to work together. And now she's actually mediating. So she knows who she is, uh, doing a fabulous job of it. And she and I were actually having a recent discussion around uh, long COVID. And we haven't talked about this too much. Mm-hmm. And I think it was important for us to sort of put this back into the context of the disability realm and what we do at our firm and, and what's been going on in the world. So look, you know, are we over the pandemic? I don't know. I, You know, I, I can't comment on that. I, mentally, I feel like we should be over it. You know everyone sort of wants to move on with life but when you listen to what's happening from a health perspective we're very clearly in the seventh wave in Ontario so there is a resurgence there are variants these things are happening and the thing that this mediator and I were specifically speaking of was multiple contractions of COVID apparently is being linked to long COVID and I think I read a news report about this as well so long, COVID, as some may know, uh, you know, has these non-specific symptoms—things that you really can't see on a scan. Perhaps a persistent cough, perhaps fatigue, persisting fatigue, some cognitive lag. There's a variety of things that I've read about uh, that are being associated with getting COVID and the, the symptoms following COVID. And apparently, if you get COVID more than once, you have a higher incidence of getting these symptoms that persist well beyond sort of three, four days, couple of weeks, it can last four months. Yeah. And what's difficult about that is that I don't think there's enough medical information out there, and you're now facing potentially making a disability claim, perhaps a short-term disability claim or a long-term disability claim, and having to substantiate to the insurance company, look, this is all symptoms related to my getting COVID, not once, but twice. And it can be a really tall order to try and convince an adjuster with little medical information to substantiate the symptoms, frankly, to actually approve your disability claim. But it should be improved, John. This is what me and this other mediator were talking about. This is where disability insurers are supposed to step up. I've been saying this for a couple of years now. And the fact that they're denying claims because either you're not getting treatment or you're not improving or your symptoms are not disabling enough, We see this common rhetoric. But at the end of the day, people are really suffering. And the fact that there isn't enough support shouldn't be held against them for denying their disability claim. That's not a proper basis for an insurance company to say no. Yes, they do have requirements in their policies that say, look, you have to meet a test of total disability. Okay, I understand that, and I accept that. You have to try and seek appropriate treatment for whatever it is that is disabling you. Okay, I understand and accept that. But if you've got a series of symptoms for which there isn't a clear medical, either diagnosis or protocol for treatment, then I gotta say, if the symptoms are sufficient to meet the test of total disability, if they are preventing you from working and your doctor saying, look, we gotta figure out what's going on with you. You should be working in a scenario like this. And by the way, please don't get COVID again for a third time. I mean, who knows what could happen in a circumstance (laughs) like that, right? In a profile like that it makes sense to assert the disability claim and and make sure that the insurance company is paying the benefit in a circumstance like that because i can tell you the courts have acknowledged in the case law that the symptoms are enough you don't need a clear diagnosis so you don't necessarily need a long covid diagnosis per se by an epidemiologist or some other expert in these kinds of um, diseases and viruses. You just need to show that these symptoms are sufficiently sufficiently disabling that you're not capable of doing your own occupation, at least for whatever period of time that you need to recover. So, you know, I, I thought it was an interesting one to sort of put out there and have a further discussion in case there are listeners who are saying, look, have I missed the boat, you know, I still mm-hmm. feel like I've got long COVID, I've got, you know, these, this, these situations, you know, maybe I shouldn't be bothering making a disability claim, I don't know what to do. No, don't hesitate, assert that application, and if you're being met with those barriers and that resistance, then, you know, we're only just a phone call away, and John could give you all the details of how to reach us.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting too, because I mean we're still pretty much, well, as you said, still in a wave currently as we're doing this show. But I mean, you know, this could be years and years from now. People suffering That's these right. effects from long calling. We're not doctors; it's not a show yeah. about medicine. But you got to figure this could, with a certain amount of population, wreak havoc for years and years to come. So insurance companies better, uh, they better buckle oh, in yeah. because it's yeah, exactly because it's going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, few years ahead for sure. We got uh, so much more to get through, so we want to take a short break before we dive into some email again, Senator one along anytime it might appear on the show. Help at disabilityrights.ca and reach Tamar and her team 1-855-821-5900. Short break and right back with more of the Disability Law Show. Yeah, yeah, back. Disability Law Show. Good to have you along for the uh, remainder of the hour. You can reach out any time. Send along an email if you have questions. It might appear and get read out on a show like we're going to do here momentarily. How do you do it? Help at disabilityrights.ca. And the phone number to reach Tamar Agopian anytime and her team at the firm. Here's how you do that. one eight five five eight. 5, Do not hesitate to call. You have questions. Don't let it fester. It's uh, it's important business, and you want to get your head around it for sure. It's complex dealing with an insurance company for sure. So tomorrow, our team, experts at it. So reach out and have a uh, a private conversation for sure. All right, David. First email of the uh, of the show says, "Hey, tomorrow, my insurance company wants me to fill out an education, training, and experience form four months into my LTD claim." Uh, I'm still seeing my neurologist regarding my diagnosis. I drive a commercial vehicle and have lost my license for five years. This is my posted position with my employer. Should I be filling out this form so early into my LTD claim?
1: Good question, David. Thank you so much for reaching out to us. This is an interesting one, John, because if David is familiar with our show, we often talk about these this kind of information being requested by an insurance company usually much further along in the disability claim. So for those, just as a quick reminder, typically the first two years, you're looking at a definition under the disability policy that says, look, are you totally disabled from your own occupation? So in David's uh, situation, his posted position, as he says to us, is driving a commercial vehicle. So the disability insurer will be looking at, look, do his health issues, which we don't have a lot of, though he says, He's seeing a neurologist, so I got to think it's got to be something related to the brain or the nerves, perhaps. You know, do the symptoms and conditions that he's got for which he's being treated, do those prevent him from driving this this commercial vehicle? And the insurance company looks like they've approved and paid. And so if they're in pay mode, great, that's that's excellent. But what ends up happening is that definition to continue to qualify for disability benefits will change. Usually we see that at the two-year mark. Where after 24 months of benefits or two years of benefits having been paid, the test becomes tougher to meet, arguably, and it's a higher threshold because it's then, is there anything David could do? Anything for which he's got the education, training, and experience to do. And because of the way that this test reads, insurance companies will send out a form or request further information from a claimant about that background, which is what David is telling us that the insurance company is doing. But they're doing it at month four so should there be any hesitation for david in completing this kind of 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 a form no i don't think so john i think you know my my approach always to any claimant who's in pay mode or even getting a little squirrely that their benefits may end You want to be open and honest with the disability insurer. You want to cooperate with their efforts in assessing your disability claim. I see very little downside in providing this kind of information because it's helpful to them in the sense that if, for example, David's education, training, and experience is somewhat limited, they're going to try and line that up in the any occupation analysis and say, okay, are there, in fact, other jobs that he could directly go and do Given what his background is from a work perspective and which would typically pay you roughly what your ltd benefit is so that analysis is important it is important to cooperate with the insurance company's requests on information like this but i think the other feature of this is look why are they asking me in month four like it seems kind of soon that they're asking that right and so look there could be a couple of theories you know one thought that i had was Could it be that David's disability policy has a 12-month own occupation period? So could it be that that initial phase is just a year for him, such that the insurance company is expecting to do that change of definition analysis much sooner than what we typically see, what we would normally see and what we normally talk about on the show? Totally possible. And so if David is not sure, you want to get a copy of the policy not your benefit booklet, the actual wording of the disability policy. You want to understand that. Or at least ask the adjuster, hey, by the way, I'm happy to provide this information, but I'm curious. I wouldn't think you'd need this just yet. Can you explain to me why you need the info? They should be sharing that information with you as well. It should be. There should be some mutual transparency, John. Ideally, in an ideal world, the adjuster should be just as open with you as you are with them. So, you know, fair question, absolutely. I think the other theory I had potentially is that the fact that he's lost his license for five years, some disability policies right at the end of the definitions for disability. So they'll say, this is a test for disability on occupation, any occupation. Then there's another line that says, and if your occupation requires you to have a license of some kind. The loss of the license is not going to inform our decision around whether or not you meet the test of disability under our policy. So this can, in fact, impact quite directly commercial truck drivers, real estate licensees, right? Think about where you would need a broker, for example. You need a specific license in order to practice in these areas. Lawyers, another one. Um, and if you've lost your license, obviously you're not going to be able to do your own occupation just by virtue of that loss of that license. So some insurers will actually include that in the analysis or in the policy, rather, of the analysis of total disability. So maybe that's what's happening in David's situation. In any event, whether it's one theory or the other, John, I see a lot of uh, you know benefit in David sharing the information with the insurance company and ensuring that he gets a response. So you've submitted it. You want to understand, what do they do with it? Like, Are you going to get something in writing from them Mm, about what their conclusion is? Do, do get it in writing so that it forms part of the adjudication, part of the analysis, because if things go to the point where many of these disability claims go, which is a premature decline of claims or a wrongful decline of claim, you can go back and say, well, hey, they used this information, maybe incorrectly, maybe they made the wrong assumptions, and this is what they said to me. That's a great breeding ground to challenge the disability insurer on the assumptions that they've made in order to cut off your disability claim.
0: Again, 1-855-821-5900. Anytime to reach out to tomorrow and team with uh, with questions beyond something you hear on the show, you can do that anytime you would like. The, um, you know, the money that, that David would get, or at least his job that they're trying to say, you know, maybe you can do this, maybe you can do that. Um, it would have to be of a certain amount. I know, I know you, you talk about that 60 or 65%. I mean, is this based on his, on his salary as his job? Because he is a commercial vehicle driver and some of those guys do very well. And, you know, he's not going to make the same, you know, making coffee to, at a coffee shop if they tell him to do that. You know what I mean? So that's got to be in, in some serious consideration, no?
1: It, it is and it's an important one it's it's interesting i was uh recently doing a little bit of training of, of a couple members of our team john around mm-hmm. some of the uh nuances around disability uh, law and disability litigation and one of the things i really honed in on was how do they calculate what, what's what's right. the basis of the calculation around not only the ltd benefit for the own occupation but also for the any occupation so let's break this down for our listeners the own occupation is typically two thirds of what you're making before. LTD benefits are not at 100%. And sometimes people get surprised because they've been getting short-term disability, maybe at 100%, perhaps paid by their employer. And then when it transitions to LTD, all of a sudden they're getting less money, they don't understand why. That is typical, actually. And the disability policy will say right at the beginning what the level or percentage is that you are covered for, for disability benefits. So. The standard is two, typically 66.67% or some calculation around that, uh, but generally speaking, it's two-thirds of what you're making. But they use that, insurance companies that is, to do their analysis for the any occupation. But but let's think about that. So when they're looking at own occupation, they're saying, can you go back to the job that you were doing before you became sick, before you became disabled and unable to do, to work? And looking at it as in, can you go back to the essential duties, usually doing most of your job, making most of the money that you were making beforehand. So it's getting you back, you know, like at 100%, maybe 90%. You know, if I want to put a percentage on it, it's essentially getting back to the own job, regular job, Mm -hmm. regular pay. But any occupation is not like that. It's a totally different analysis because the threshold for alternative work is lower. It is recognizing the cases and some policies even say right in there what that percentage is and that percentage is usually around what your ltd benefit is so it's two-thirds 66.67 percent some insurers use 65 percent some cases say 75 percent. either way john it's never a hundred percent so now the bar is lower right so can you go and work maybe even part-time hours and earn two-thirds of what you were making before even with your health issues. And if the insurance company thinks yes to that, then they're gonna cut off the claim and say, look, we understand you've got ongoing back pain, but we think you can get a sit-stand desk, work from home, and you know, you'll know you tough it out, maybe work yep. four or five hours a day, and you'll make the commensurate wage or the alternative right. wage to satisfy the any occupation test. And so I find that can be very difficult for individuals to get their head around. It can be a difficult analysis to make and really how do you line that up with your medical information and so you really do want to get your doctors and your healthcare providers to be very detailed in the information that they're providing the limitations around sitting standing fatigue perhaps it's a mental health condition can't get out of bed you know 3 days out of 7 you know these kinds of things difficult to describe very important to validate by your by your medical practitioners, the people who are in your corner who are helping you get better. And I find that sometimes it can get glossed over. And when it gets glossed over, it allows the adjuster to make these assumptions and say, okay, well, your doctor didn't say you had a sitting limitation. So I'm going to assume you're okay. And you can sit for the rest of the day. Or you're sitting watching TV four hours a day, because that's what you told me that you're doing. So you must be fine and be able to work. Right. John, That. Those things are totally different. Sitting and watching a television program is very different than, you know, answering phones and typing and this kind of thing, sitting on an upright chair, you know, four hours a day and and doing all the things that are required in, in a sedentary type job. So, look, it's a nuanced analysis, but it's an important one. And I think that when listeners are thinking, look, where do I go with a situation like this? Why is the math so important? This is why, because there are thresholds for alternative work and those thresholds are tied to what we were initially making. And to your point because I think you said this right from the start, I John that you know some of these commercial vehicle drivers can make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You're right. but the insurance policies usually only deal with their base salaries. Huh? So a lot of these guys, women, they're making overtime. I had a client doing shift premiums, and she was making like 20,30,000 more than what she was insured for for disability benefits. So there's a real disconnect between what the actual earnings are sometimes and what the disability benefit is, and therefore what the insurer's analysis is on what the commensurate wage is, the alternative wage or the own occupation wage. So these things are really, really important. And I can assure you that if you're coming to me and we're having a conversation and we're getting ready for a legal claim to challenge the disability insurer, either for the own occupation or any occupation, I am going to be underlining the fact that, look, the analysis here is flawed because this individual is actually making a lot more money than they were insured for. So if you insurance companies looking at the big picture, not only do you have to look at the education, training and experience, but you have to actually look at their real earnings, not just the earnings for which they were insured for. So an important discussion, a very nuanced one, but certainly something that I think we really do helpfully underline for insurance companies in our negotiations for resolution for our clients.
0: Yeah, I think at that point, you just hand the insurance company the person's T4. So here, that's the real <laughs> income, okay? This is what this is what we're going to base this on, especially someone in sales, right? Like, here's, here's, here's my base salary of 10 grand a year, but you're not accounting for the other half million I made because I'm a rock star, right? But I don't know if that would ever happen, but... I guess you could give it a shot. Look, we got lots more to uh, lots more to cover off. In the meantime, reaching out to Tomorrow New Team, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at disabilityrights.ca is that email address. We'll get back and more of those coming up in just a bit. This is the Disability Law Show disability law show that's where you have arrived appreciate you sticking around for the hour you want to reach out and say hey tomorrow i got a question i want something i want to discuss you could do that when the show is done anytime help at disabilityrights.ca. the email address we always go to yours may appear on a show sometime too so how about that one 855 821 is the number question i was thinking of during the last segment tomorrow if a person's disability claim was just denied do they have to keep paying the insurance premiums? Because I know what I would say if I'm paying you money and I'm not getting anything for it, (laughs) right?
1: Yeah, right, exactly. And I think the inclination is not to. Um, But you want to be careful about that because you may have premiums that go to different parts of your policy. So what you're being denied for, John, if you're being denied is typically long-term disability or short-term disability. But a lot of these plans are tied to your employment, and employers have group plans that have other coverages included in your package. So the same policy, same insurance company could be covering you for a long-term and short-term and also for life insurance, dental, extended health care, and other types of coverages like this. So, you know, it can differ depending on if you pay the premium, your employer pays the premium or you both pay the premium. So there could be some combination of all of this. And you want to be careful about stopping to pay those premiums if you want to maintain other coverages but the difficulty is john that you're not getting any money that's coming in right how are you affording the premiums and i really do sympathize with claimants who come to me and say tomorrow okay i get it we're going to pursue this benefit from the insurance company i i totally understand it's going to take some time to do that You know, I'll make some choices on whether or not it's worth continuing to remit the premium for LTD. Maybe it's not, uh, but I need my health benefits because that's what's paying for physio and that's what's Mm -hmm. paying for my medication that I need. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, look, this is typically tied to employment. I would say some employers are satisfied to waive those premiums on occasion when, even when the disability insurer has said no, that you don't qualify for disability benefits. Other employers will say, sorry, you don't have access to it. We only extend it for a period of time, so you don't get the benefits anyway. And those actually come to an end, unfortunately. There's a whole host of different scenarios that can come up, but you want to be informed. That's the main thing. You want to very clearly understand what the insurance company is saying to you and then where what your status is with your employer. Because what if it's the employer that pays the premium and they're happy to continue remitting that premium? Super duper then you can continue to access your extended health benefits and still continue to get your medication covered, covered and your therapies covered and so on. So, you know, I think that the only exception I would say potentially, John, is if you've got an individual disability policy. We don't talk about these too, too much. Most of what we talk about on our show are group disability plans that are tied to employment. But if you're one of those people who, do, who does have an individual disability plan, then you might want to actually continue remitting the premium. I have found in my experience that that can create a lot of good leverage against the insurance company when it comes time to discussing resolution of the disability claim because it demonstrates that my client, the claimant, has continued to pay the premium for this benefit because they feel that they are entitled to the benefits that are under, you know, that are covered by this plan and in the face of all this you've still denied his or her disability benefits. The optics don't look good for the insurance company. if You're still remitting the premium and they're not paying out when they should. So I think that would be the only exception. But that's, again, a very nuanced response to a general question, which is, look, it doesn't sit real with me. I really don't want to keep paying the premium. Eh, if you don't want to maintain your disability coverage, that's OK, too. The important part is that the insurance company already approved and paid you or perhaps looked at your disability application at a time where premiums were up to date and where you had coverage so you've crystallized your claim anyway whether or not premiums continue to be remitted for that but that's just for disability the other Mm -hmm. coverages may go away if those premiums don't continue to be paid
0: want to get to Romy. Romy sends an email in, says, Hey, Tamar, I've uh, been a disability since October 2020. I was told I have depression, anxiety, PTSD. My doctor has kept me off work, and the insurance company says payments are not being made until I go to an IME, which I have no problem doing at all. Uh, I'm really anxious because I'm worried they will cut me off completely. I never in a million years expected to feel this way. It's the hardest thing uh, besides almost losing my son that I've ever had to deal with. I'm still dealing with his chronic illness. He uh, had a transplant in October and is having grand mal seizures and has memory loss. They're trying to figure out why. I relive so much of what happened because it all started with a different strain of coronavirus. Every time I see someone on TV in ICU or hear about it, I break down. I'm just scared, to be honest, and worried that the insurance company won't support me. Wow. Oh, Rami, I'm so
1: sympathetic to your situation. Like, it, it really does sound very, very difficult. You know, I'm a mom of two boys. I, I get it. If your children mm-hmm. are sick, it's like I feel it myself. Um, so really t- tough times for sure. And clearly, her health issues, John, have been persisting for a number of years. And so, look, you know, yes, you do want to cooperate with the insurance company's efforts to continue to assess your claim, adjudicate your claim. And in certain instances, they will ask you to attend an IME what's an IME independent medical examination or some sort of an assessment by one of their own doctors or experts to look at whether or not you continue to meet the test of total disability uh, the IME itself will most likely be in person some are virtual but usually they are in person especially if it's with a mental health specialist it can be done virtually Either way, Romy, you're gonna be meeting with a doctor of some kind, and you're gonna go through the process of detailing all of your health issues, perhaps your triggers, as you described in your email so helpfully, and explain that your health issues have been persisting, and that you really do have the support of your own doctors, that you've still got these ongoing mental health conditions. And you know the doctor's gonna to talk to you for a little bit. They may or may not review your medical information, And then they're going to prepare a report for the disability insurer, typically answering three or four very targeted questions that were asked by the adjuster to the assessor to answer. And one of them invariably will be, you know, can Romy work? Can Romy not work? What's the prognosis? What's the diagnosis? So I actually did a good blog on this some years back, John. So if you go onto our website, Romy, you can find the blog, some tips around, you know, what do you need to do to prepare for an IME? What should you do during the ime what should you do after the ime and the main thing really is that you should document things on your own end and make sure that your doctor or healthcare specialist is aware that you're going to undergo this kind of an assessment because if the ime comes back to say look Romy's fine she should be able to work um, well then you really do want your own team to rebut that to prepare a response to provide further medical support of your ongoing health issues um, you know to the insurance company so that you can try and ensure that your ongoing your benefits are ongoing and do not get cut off prematurely, it may happen. in, in any event, and hopefully, you know, at that stage we're sort of uh, on the path of already getting a legal claim going. But let's do this, John. Why don't we pick this up after the break? And we're going to touch on a couple more points on Romy's email.
0: You bet. We'll do that. And in the meantime, here's the number to reach out to tomorrow on your team anytime at your leisure when you need them one eight five five. 821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. And for any other questions, you can ask uh, free and anonymously at mydisabilityquestions.com. Short break, and back with a few more minutes of the Disability Law Show. All right, welcome back. Disability Law Show here. Uh, Tamara Gopian is your uh, pal for all things when it comes to this particular topic. Reaching out to Tamara after the show and her team to have a chat, get more information, get educated. Right? 1-855-821-5900, help at rights rights.ca we were talking about Romy's email she's under a lot of stress just give us some broad strokes again tomorrow and where you want to lead this one
1: absolutely so what she described to us is a lot of fear and anxiety around attending the independent medical assessment that the insurance companies propose that she attend and it sounds like they've actually cut off the benefits until she attends so it's almost proving the negative which is that she's continuing to be totally disabled And that's the part of her email that I want to focus in on, John, because that's not right, actually. If she has ongoing health issues and the support of her doctors that she remains disabled, then that sounds to me like the insurance company has cut off the claim prematurely and then is sort of saying, okay, now we're going to send you to an IME and then we'll decide whether we're going to reverse our decision. It shouldn't be that way. Typically, they have an obligation and a duty to do their due diligence to assess your claim fairly and in good faith. Well, part of that is continuing to support you on the disability benefit until they can make that assessment. And so if the IME isn't for another three, four, five months or perhaps it's in two months but they don't get the report from that for another month or two, well then I don't see why Romy should be in a situation where she shouldn't continue getting her disability benefit. So that troubles me and certainly can add to a profile of further anxiety and worry when she describes that that's her disabling health issue to begin with. So I'm inclined to sort of suggest that perhaps the insurance company's opening the door to a potential punitive damages claim here, or some kind of a mental distress damages claim. And what that is for our listeners is a court or a judge making a ruling that over and above the disability benefit that the insurance company's conduct exacerbated or aggravated Romy's health conditions by virtue of the fact that it sounds like they cut her off prematurely and then submitted her to an extensive independent medical assessment and then made her wait to see whether or not she was going to get her benefits or not get her benefits it's a long time for someone to be in a situation like hers without the income that she needs to not only support herself but it sounds like she's also got a sick child that she's dealing with as well. well so The courts have said these mental distress damages claims, you know, the threshold is fairly low. Now, it's typically around $10,000, $15,000, John. So it's not certainly sort of millions and millions that's going to be awarded, but it's an important point that if the insurance company's conduct is adding to the profile and certainly sending you to an IME can add to that profile. The threshold is very low to demonstrate that that has added to your health issues and that there should be additional amounts awarded to you if you do challenge the disability insurer all the way through to a trial. So that's really what I wanted to add to to Romy's profile. But um, at the end of the day, I think she should attend the IME but ensure that she's also providing updated medical information to the insurance company that she's got ongoing health issues.
0: Romy, really appreciate you reaching out through email. And again, the phone number, if you want to continue on, you may get a call anyway, one 5,900. You know, as far as prepaying some LTD benefits, some insurance companies will do that for, I don't know, we've talked about it, three months, maybe half a year. If you're in that situation tomorrow, do you have to wait until the end of that prepaid period to then start a legal claim or simultaneously?
1: Yeah. The, the short answer is no, you don't have to wait, John. But but let me give the more broader answer because I think that's what our listeners are looking for. and And it's this, you know, let's think of a situation where Uh, the change of definitions coming up even in six months. Insurance companies are notorious for sending a letter saying, we don't think you're going to meet the change of definition in six months. Here are the balance of the LTD benefits that are payable to you. Bye-bye. You're done. And Mm -hmm. they don't even reevaluate. They don't even continue to adjudicate after that, John. They say you can appeal. That's an option for you. But from our perspective, nothing's going to change in the next six months and we don't think you're going to meet uh, the definition after the definition changes in that six-month period. And so they've made their decision. That's the key. Once the insurance company has made a decision, whether positive or negative, in other words, whether it's an approval or a denial, that triggers certain rights in law. And that denial certainly triggers your right to start a legal claim. You don't necessarily have to wait out that six-month period in order to start that process. In fact, I would encourage you not to because what the insurance company is essentially goading you to do is to go down the road of their appeal process. Right. That's that's really people are like, okay, wait a minute. So now I've got six months. So let me do what it is that they want me to do and run around and get further medical or do send a letter or do whatever. And that's going to change our mind. It's not. And, in fact, they've exposed themselves by prematurely cutting you off, right? it's It's a great claim for a legal claim to sort of say, hang on. You didn't even want to wait the outcome of further treatment. You didn't even get updated medical information. You didn't even send them to a rehabilitation facility, for example. You did nothing. You just simply decided insurance company that they're not going to meet the test and you cut them off. So that prepayment is uh, not ideal for people, but also a good warning that, look, this is on a path. They're on a path. That path is not going to change. So you better get some rights, get some legal advice and get some options as to what your next steps should be. And, you know, frankly, a lot of that's going to depend on the medical information. You know, if, if you think there is a reasonable likelihood for you to return to work after those six months, then great, even mm-hmm. better. Then you will receive your disability benefits and then get yourself prepared to get back to work. Um, but if it's going to be more of the same, and the expectation is that your prognosis is gonna remain unchanged in three months, two months, six months, 10 months, years, it could be a permanent condition, then by all means, that should be the the trigger in your mind to say, okay, now I've got the basis to start a legal claim. I'm gonna get some advice and make the decision to move forward and challenge the disability insurer for their premature decline.
0: Last couple minutes, Tamar, maybe just reiterate what we talked about off the top when it comes to dealing with long COVID as it uh, as it pertains to your insurance provider, because this is going to be an ongoing problem for years, I would imagine, right?
1: Absolutely. And so, you know, with long COVID, I think what's helpful is certainly documenting what is happening from a health perspective. I'm certainly not suggesting that there needs to be, uh, you know, oh, I got COVID and tomorrow I got you know, a a runny nose, and then the next week I got a cough. And, you know, that progression sure is helpful. I think what's more helpful, John, is that you are engaging some medical resources to figure out what's going on and at least demonstrate to the insurance company that you're not just sitting back and waiting to receive your disability benefit, that you're doing something active to try and improve your health, to try and improve the situation, and that you're being met with more of the same symptoms that are persisting, and preventing you from working. That type of a profile is typically better to present as a full disability claim to the insurer than sort of the other scenario which is I got covid yesterday and tomorrow I'm making my disability claim. So, yeah. you know, really do make sure that you're engaging your medical team on this. Um, you know, and hopefully the insurance company will do right by you and if they don't, uh, please don't hesitate to give us a call. Let's have a good consultation around what your options might be to move forward with a legal claim.
0: Good way to wrap it up for another show, pal. And you want to reach out now to tomorrow since we are done. You can do so, one 855 821 Of course, the phone number, help at disabilityrights.ca. That's where we pulled those emails from today and always will. And other options to ask questions anonymously. I'm going to plug this one more time as well. Mydisabilityquestions.com. And we'll catch you next time. This is the Disability Law Show.